have you ever had a piece of food stuck in your teeth and you didn't know it? Have you ever had that before? Tell me, how did you end up knowing that you had said piece of food stuck in your teeth? How did, how did you find out? Amir? Anyone else? So, somebody told you? Somebody told you, right? Okay. There you go. As, uh, as many of you know, uh, my father, he's in sales. And for many years, the company that he works for would fly him around the country in order to train those that were in outside sales. And th this wasn't new salesmen who needed to learn the ropes. No, these, this, it wasn't like training in that regard. No, these were all seasoned and experienced uh, salespeople. And my dad's company would fly him around the country to these different locations in order for him to coach these sales reps on how to improve, how to improve their sales. Well, one of the sales principles my father would teach these reps was something he called the booger principle. <laughs> and do you know what the booger principle is? I'll tell you what the booger principle is. In business, it's the skill of knowing how to say the hard things that need to be said either to another employee, client, or vendor. It's skillfully knowing how to say the hard things, the hard things that need to be said in order to help the relationship. For instance, imagine with me for a moment that someone borrowed a tool from you. You lent them a tool, and they forgot to give it back to you. Yet you, you really needed this tool because of something you were doing around the house. Now, in that kind of situation, what would you say to your friend? You'd say, hey, hey, buddy, hey, friend, um, would you mind returning the tool I lent you a couple weeks ago? I need it for something to do in my home, right? And what would they say? They'd say, sure. And they give back. Not that big of a deal, right? Someone borrows something, they forget to give it to you. That's not a big deal. Could you please give it back? Sure. But what if someone came up to you right before church started? Let's say about 10 minutes before the service. And they come up and they, they give you a hug and they start talking to you and they start asking you questions and they got a really big booger in their nose. Okay? They give you a hug. Say, hey, how's it going? They start talking with you. What would you do in that situation? That's a little more awkward, isn't it? And why is it more awkward? Is it not because having a booger is more embarrassing than forgetting to return a tool, right? So what would you do? Actually, here's a better question. What would the loving thing to do? What would be the loving thing to do? Would it not be to pull the person aside and tell them that they got a big booger in their nose? <laughs> because look, kind of with a, like with a piece of food in your teeth, yet more embarrassing, if I got a booger in my nose, do I know it? 
Do I know it? No. So you know what you're doing when you tell me I have a booger in my nose? What are you doing? You're helping me. You're saying the hard thing that needs to be said in order to help the situation, aren't you? Right? That's the booger principle. You say the hard thing, you point out something the other person often can't see, even if it might be embarrassing, in order to help them in that situation. You know what happens every time my dad shares this in a room full of sales reps? You know what happens? You know what they do? that? The same thing all of you are doing right now, wiping their nose. <laughs> Going like this, right? The booger principle. Pointing out something the other person cannot see in order to help them in the relationship or situation. L let me ask you this question. What ought you do if someone doesn't have a booger in their nose, but if they have an unrepentant sin in their life? What should you do in that situation? Because you know what, faith, just, just like a booger, many times we cannot see the sin in our own lives. We can't. Yet far greater than the embarrassment of having something in your nose, sin is deadly. So what should we do if we find a fellow Christian, a fellow brother or sister, a fellow church member caught in some kind of sin, perhaps even a sin they are unaware of? What should we do? Well, turn within your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12. Last week, our study of 2 Samuel 12 led us to chapter 11, the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, and then David's murder, not only of Uriah, but several other men and his attempts in order to cover up his sin. And do you remember what the Lord thought of David's sinful actions? Do you remember what the Lord thought? It's found there in the final line, the final verse of chapter 11. The text says, if you have your eyes, it says that the thing David had done what? Displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In fact, that was the main point of our sermon last week, was it not? Simply this. Sin displeases the Lord. Your sin, my sin, it displeases the Lord. Well, God, being the gracious God that he is, he doesn't leave David alone in his sin. No, God in his kindness 
he sends the prophet Nathan to David. In faith, in this chapter, we learn several valuable truths concerning how we ought to care and respond to fellow Christians who are caught in sin. And at the outset, I cannot stress how, it imp how important it is that we not only know this, but apply it in our church with one another. As we've been talking about, we not only trust the message of the Bible, but we also trust the methods of the Bible. And here we see the method of how one ought to go about responding to a Christian like David who is caught in sin. So turn with me in your Bibles there to 2 Samuel 12. That's page 263 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And follow along with me as I read chapter 12, verses 1 through 31. So... David, if we're using the language of Nathan, he took something that didn't belong to him. He took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, then to cover up his sin. He allowed and ordered Joab to have the, the troops fall back so that Uriah would die on the battlefield. Yet even in that act of Uriah dying on the battlefield, Several other men died in the process in order to cover the sin. And once Uriah died, David took Bathsheba into his home. He became his wife, and she bore him a son. And this is where we pick up in, verse tw in chapter 12, verse 1. And keep in mind, in chapter 11, you'll recall, uh, everybody's being sent, Right? David is sending messengers to Bathsheba. David is sending messengers to Joab. Joab is sending messengers back to David. There's a lot of sending of messengers in chapter 11. Well, now in chapter 12, God gets in on that party. And he sends Nathan. Notice what we read. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now let's just pause there for a moment and consider a moment. Why do you think Nathan is choosing to tell David a story about a shepherd who loved and cared for a lamb? This was no off-the-cuff, random story that Nathan pulled out of thin air. Why do you think Nathan, of all the things he could have shared with him, he chose to tell a story about a shepherd who loved a lamb? Why is that? Exactly. Because David, before he became king, was a shepherd. 
He cared for and looked after sheep. Now, some argue that this, what Nathan is saying here, is a parable, but it's important to know we don't, we don't know for sure if David thought it was a parable. Nathan didn't say it was a parable. And here's the other thing. Keep in mind that matters, as we're about to see as the story unfolds, matters like this were often brought before the king for the king to settle the dispute. So David most likely thought there was going to be a dispute here that he had to settle himself. So parable or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that these first three verses are just simply setting the stage for what happens in the following verse. Look at verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. So the rich man has a guest. Now there came a child to the rich man, and he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now notice, the text says that the lamb was like a daughter to the poor man. Did you see it there at the end of verse 3? In Hebrew, do you know how daughter is spelled? If we were to transliterate, it would be B-A-T-H, bath. The very same syllable first syllable for the name Bath. Notice Nathan is coming perilously close to giving away the story. But I want you to notice David doesn't pick up on this. This again I think goes back to what we talked about last week when I told you in no uncertain terms that sin makes you what? Stupid. He's dull here. But notice also why he doesn't notice, he's enraged. Because look at his response there in verse 5. After hearing the story, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this, has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then Nathan says this, and Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God, through the prophet Nathan, says to David, David, you're so enraged at this terrible thing, this guy who took this one little lamb from a poor man, you want to see him dead? David, that's you. And then as we talked about last week, Nathan unpacks this and points out just how ungrateful David has been to the Lord. Now, it's important to note that, that line about the wives. There's no biblical record or even a hint, as we've been working our way through First and Second Samuel, that Saul had a harem. And since that is the case, what many scholars believe this phrase to mean is it's simply a, at that time, was a common expression that was used to describe a complete takeover by another king, that he got everything. 
And that's what I think what's going on here. The point that the Lord is getting at is that the Lord has greatly and abundantly blessed David. Greatly. Now notice how the Lord understands David's sin. In verse 9, he said, I've given you this, I'm going to give you much more, verses 9 and 10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, referring to God, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And let me just pause here. That's the rest of the book. This being played out. I will bring out evil against you out of your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Verse 12, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Friend, please hear me. There's no such thing as secret sin. None. Take that to the bank. Everything done in secret will be exposed, will be brought out into the light, into the noonday sun, just as God is doing with David here. So what I would plead with you, friend, is if there is sin you're concealing, conceal it no more. Bring it into the light. Confess it before the Lord. Confess it before those who need to hear it and receive Christ's cleansing. Deal with your sin now, this text is saying to us. And notice that's exactly what we see David doing next. His sin is brought into the open, and notice verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David, good, now go in the corner and suffer some more. Is that what he says? No, friend, hear these words. And then Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Why? Because David confessed it to the Lord. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I, wa I want you to notice that although God doesn't remove his promises to David, his great and magnificent promises that he had in 2 Samuel 7, God does bring sin's penalties into his life. Though David is forgiven, there are still consequences to his actions. And even though God said the child would die, you know what David did? He fasted and prayed. Do you know why he fasted and prayed? He did so hoping that God would spare the child. He knows God is a gracious God. So he fasts and he prays. 
for after seven days, after seven days, the child dies. And when this happens, you know what the servants of David are? They're kind of afraid. They don't want to tell David. You know why they don't want to tell David? Because they see David fasting and praying and mourning, and they're concerned that if we actually tell him that the child died, that David's actually going to take his own life. But that's not what happens. Look at verses 20. Let's skip down to verse 20. So they said, he is dead, verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Think about that. The thing he wanted to happen didn't happen. And what was his response? He went where? To house and to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord. And then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, now this, is a, this verse has had a lot of ink spilled over it. Some understand this verse simply to mean that David, like the child, will someday die. Others understand this phrase that David shall go to him. It, it seems to indicate that there's an expectation of a future personal reunion. It's hard, it's hard to know. I don't think we should read too much into it. But David clearly loved this child and was sad that he had died. Now notice how, what happens next in verses 24 and following. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, referring to Solomon, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now notice how this chapter ends. Look at what we see David doing down there in verse 29. This chapter ends, notice, with David on the battlefield, fighting alongside his people, leading them to victory. Look at verse 29. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. And then the last line there, and thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, something didn't happen this past October that has happened every year since faith has existed as a church, does anyone know what didn't happen this past October? Oh, oh Will, hold on, hold on, everybody. Will, what is it? Oh, oh, yes, we didn't have the fall festival. You're right about that. I'm thinking of something else, though. That's a good guess. Jeannie. They didn't have the Iron Man. Yes, let's give it up for Jeannie Roof. That's right, yes. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We didn't have Iron Man Sunday, right? 
as, as many of you know, uh, every year they have Ironman here in Louisville, and part of the bike route for the Ironman race goes from River Road up Highway 42 past Roseline Road here. And the reason why we schedule, uh, reschedule our Sunday services, there's absolutely no way you can get here with all the bike traffic. In fact, for those who live south of Ginger Woods, and actually for almost everybody, it is almost impossible, it is impossible to get here because there's only one road that can get you to Ginger Woods. You know what road that is? It's Highway 42. There's no other access point to Ginger Woods unless you get on Highway 42 if you live south of Ginger Woods. It's literally the only way to get here. As several commentators have rightly observed, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, they form one unit. And notice, whereas this sad tale begins with David being passive, failing to fulfill his kingly responsibilities to fight, that's how it begins, how does 2 Samuel chapter 12 end? What do we see David doing? He's fighting. He's fighting the Ammonites. The text is saying David has been restored. David, through the chapter I just read, he has owned and confessed his sin, and now he is doing what he's been called to do as God's anointed king. And faith, here's the million-dollar question. How did David get there? How did David go from committing several great sins then covering up those great sins, to now fully owning his sin and being restored, being restored to the point where we now see him fulfill his responsibilities to fight as a king. How did David get there? Faith, there is only one road that led him there, and that's biblical confrontation. You see, faith, 2 Samuel 12 powerfully illustrates this life-giving truth, and that is restoration requires confrontation. Restoration, the restoration we see with David, it required there to be biblical confrontation. For the person caught in sin, please hear me, there can be no restoration to God and others without biblical confrontation. This is the main point of our passage this morning. Now, faith, please hear me. This is, this is so important that we, we understand this and we have the correct biblical categories. While it is certainly true, and we touched on this last week, that sin displeases the Lord, you know what brings the Lord pleasure? A lowly and contrite heart. A heart that is repentant. We see this not only in Psalm 51, 17, but also in Isaiah 66, 2. Listen to what God says there. God says this. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Those who have owned their sin and they confess their sin and who tremble at my word. And faith, it's precisely because of this truth that the Lord is pleased with a contrite heart that God sends Nathan to David. 
For you know what is needed for a person caught in sin to change and have a lowly and contrite heart and spirit? What is needed is biblical confrontation. For the person caught in sin, there can be no restoration without confrontation. What I want you to see, Faith, is that all Christians, if you're here this morning and you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what I want you to see is that all Christians are called to do what we see the prophet Nathan doing in this chapter. That is, we are called to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. For tell me, what does the Apostle Paul write in Galatians 6.1? Listen to what he writes. He says, brothers, you know who that is? That's us, those that are Christians, brothers and sisters. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, we know that's a person who has God's spirit, based on Galatians 5. All Christians have the spirit. He says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We as God's people... We are called and are responsible in love to confront a brother or sister who is caught in him, to gently restore them back to the Lord. This is not something I'm supposed to do by myself or just a small group leader or an elder. Brothers, this is for all of God's people. So here's the question I want us to consider and to think through for the next couple minutes, and that is, okay, how? How are we to do this? How ought we confront a brother or sister who is caught in sin? How ought we restore them in a spirit of gentleness? Well, I believe Nathan models precisely that. And there are four methods to Nathan's soul care with David that we ought to emulate. And the first is this, to confront someone biblically, to help a person in sin get out of sin, the first thing you need to do is you need to help the person own their sin. Look again at verses 1 through 7. I'm going to pick things up in verse 4 after he describes the lamb. Nathan says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest would come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall, be rest and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because, of, because he did this thing because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Uh, Abraham Maslow, Maslow lived from 1908 to 1970, and he is called the father of modern psychology. He was an avowed atheist and did not believe in God or did not think that man was accountable to God. And Maslow taught that man's greatest problem, 
man's greatest problem was not having one's underlying needs met. You see, the ultimate goal in Maslow's way of thinking is for a person to be self-actualized. Yet for that to happen, a person's underlying needs, all their underlying needs must be met. And for those of you familiar with psychology, you know Maslow created a hierarchy of needs, right? That pyramid. His hierarchy pyramid included basic physiological needs for air, water, and food. Then the next one up was basic safety and security needs, such as not having to worry for your life. And then the basic needs to be loved and to feel you belong and the need to be esteemed, right? These are his basic things. He's like, man's greatest problem is his needs aren't met. And the way you become self-actualized is by having your needs met. Indeed, many of the choices and decisions we make are because these needs aren't met. In the passage I just read, you need to know that it's been over a year since David committed his sin with Bathsheba. This text doesn't happen the moment after chapter 11 says it's been over a year. And we know this is the case because the child has already been born. Yet although it has been over a year since David committed such grievous sins, you know how David felt? He felt awful. And you know how we know this? Because he tells us as much in Psalm 32.3. Listen to what David says. He says, when I kept silent, meaning when I kept concealing my sin and not bringing it into light, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning, what? All day long. He was miserable. Now, if David scheduled an appointment with a modern therapist to help him cope with his groaning and his depressed state, you know what the therapist would do? The therapist would have done what Maslow taught and begin to ask David about his past, looking to see if there are any unmet, unmet needs or deep hurts that led him to act in the way that he acted. I mean, perhaps David, maybe he wasn't fulfilled in his marriage with Abigail. And that's why he sought out Bathsheba. Or maybe there was deep-seated trauma for when the time when Saul was hunting him down and trying to kill him that, that David really never dealt with or talked about. And that's what drove him to sin. You see, to help David cope with his guilt and to get him to be able to function, which, by the way, that's just the goal of modern psychology. The goal is just to get you to function. Modern therapists would go looking into David's past to provide some answer as to why David did what he did and thus alleviate any feelings of guilt or wrongdoing. Yet notice, that is not what the prophet Nathan does, does it? Is it? Listen to me. The prophet Nathan, who has been sent by God to speak on behalf of God, what does he say to this man whose soul is troubled and feels awful because of what he has done? Instead of looking for an excuse for why David sinned, 
Nathan's first priority was to get David to own his sin. That is to take responsibility for his sinful actions. And you know why that was Nathan's first priority? Because being restored to God is David's greatest need. And notice how masterfully Nathan does this. Friend, there's much for us to learn and glean from Nathan's approach in confronting David's sin. And it would be wise for us to take note. Notice first, and at the risk of being too obvious, please hear me, we must observe, this is really important, we must observe the phrase, you are the man, that's the punchline, not the introduction. Nathan did not go into his meeting with David reading David the riot act, laying out all the terrible things David had done. There's no evidence that Nathan enters the throne room with flashing eyes and bulging veins and waving his finger at David. No, as illustrated here in Scripture, the more common style of confrontation in the Bible is interaction. And as Galatians instructs us, we are to be gentle. In Scripture, we, we find that the person who confronts, they come alongside the person, helping them to see, telling stories, asking them questions, drawing out answers, and then calling for them to have a response. It should also be noted that before we, in our context here, before we go up to someone and say, you are the man, we need to make sure that we have all the facts straight. Nathan knew the whole situation because as a prophet of God, he had been given divine revelation on the matter. We don't have that. <laughs> Which means we must do our due diligence to ask questions to make sure we really understand the entire situation. We need to be careful, not falsely impute motives. Nor should we assume that we know the whole situation without getting all the facts. Now, if it is clear that a beloved sister in the Lord or brother in the Lord in our church or in our small group, that they are caught in a sin, then we need to lovingly confront. And I want you to see is that the brilliance of Nathan's story here in these first seven verses, notice the brilliance of it is that it led David to confront himself first before Nathan even said, you are the man. Right? How does David respond to this story? What is his emotion? He's enraged. He's like, this guy should die. How terrible. You see, the people we are called to confront will tend to be both willfully blind and blindly willful. And if he or she is going to confess and turn from his or her sin, then they must see what they have done. Because even in the moments when we are aware of our sin, often we're blind to the severity or the extent of our sin. And this is where a helpful analogy like Nathan's can prove to be so powerful and effective. 
it can aid in helping the person own their sin. I, <laughs> I once counseled a man who uh, was failing to lead his family and um, his family and fulfill his responsibilities as a husband and a father. He was not leading them like he ought. Uh, but this guy, like many guys, he really loved sports. So I was thinking, okay, what would be a helpful analogy to help this guy see where he is failing? So I came up with this. I, I encouraged him. I said, you need to think of yourself. Think of yourself like a head coach. And the people in your family, they're, they're your players. And as, the, as their coach, you're called to lead them to succeed in life and spiritually. You're, you're their coach. You're supposed to help them succeed. And you know what he said when I told him that? I said, you know, you're, you're the coach. You know what he said to me? He's like, well, I need new players. <laughs> now, we, we laughed and we chuckled. But he then confessed that that analogy helped him see where he needed to change. And faith, when we see a fellow Christian caught in sin, our approach to confronting him or her ought to be the same. It ought to be gentle. It ought to be patient. And the first step is we want to help them own their sin. And this is going to require thought. This is going to require prayer. This is going to require asking good questions. And perhaps like with Nathan, it might also um, require coming up with a helpful analogy to open the eyes of the person caught in sin. I also want to say uh, from personal experience that I've been on the receiving end. And Lord knows I need Nathans in my life where someone has come along and shared a helpful analogy to me to help me see my sin that I've been caught in. And I can say as on the receiving end how beneficial that is. But then second, in biblical confrontation, we also want to help the person grasp sin's severity. And that's what verses 7 through 12 are all about. Look at what God says. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You know, like so many of you, I was really concerned when I first heard about the host of tornadoes that ripped through Mayfield, Kentucky, and other parts of our great state. Yet I need to tell you that my concern turned to great sadness when I actually saw the aerial footage of the devastating damage. 
Have you seen this? Have you seen that footage? I didn't know the damage was so severe until I saw those images. And like we did in our service, we need to continue to be praying for all those impacted by the tornadoes. Well, in the passage I just read, the prophet Nathan is trying to accomplish the same thing with David. That is, Nathan is trying to help David grasp the severity, not of a tornado, but of his own sin. And man, notice, David or Nathan does not mince words, does he? He's clear, poignant, and direct. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot mentioned in these verses. For example, notice again how through the prophet Nathan, God hammers on David's ungrateful heart, which is why we should always be cultivating thanksgiving in our hearts. But that's not the worst of David's sin. Notice what we learn in verses 9 and 10. Notice what we learned there. This text clearly teaches that for a person to despise God's word, that's to despise God himself. Do you see the connection of those two verses? Look at what God says at the beginning of verse 9, and then what he says there in verse 10. At the beginning of verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Then go down to verse 10. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Faith to despise God's word. That is the commands and teachings of scriptures. We need to understand that is to despise God himself. And I need to ask us and ask you, do you believe that? Because hear me, it's really important that we do believe it. You know why? Because when a Christian willfully refuses to obey God's command for him or her, they're not just rejecting God's word, they're despising and rejecting God himself. And I have to tell you, this shows up most often in the counseling room with troubled relationships, be it with kids, be it in marriages. God's word clearly commands all Christians to live for him rather than themselves in each and every situation. Moreover, God teaches that your life is not your own, but that you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. This means forgiving your spouse when you don't feel like it. It means not repaying evil for evil, but overcoming evil with good. It means loving your spouse, even when your spouse fails to love you in return. It means remaining faithful to your covenant before God and man, even though your spouse over the years of your marriage has changed. Yet so often, when faced with a hard circumstance or a hard marriage, Christians can convince themselves that they can despise God's word, meaning 
that can disobey his commands while still loving God. This is to say they believe they can ignore God's command for them in this specific situation on how I'm supposed to love and forgive and care for my spouse. I can ignore that yet still think me and God, we're tight. We are tight. In fact, to often help sell our case in our minds, and I know I'm guilty of this, what we can often do is we can magnify our suffering, magnify the hardship while minimizing our sin, and believing such suffering excuses us from obeying what God calls us to do. Say, please hear me. As Christians, we are bound by Scripture. We are not free to live any way we want. No, we're to obey God's commands. David was to obey God's commands. Did he? Did he? And when Nathan comes to him, he says, you have despised the word of God, you have despised God himself. Can God's commands be hard? Can it be difficult to love a spouse who is unlovely? Can it be hard to fight bitterness when you're sinned against? Can it be hard to be patient towards your children when they sin against you? Can it be hard to be patient towards your spouse when they sin against you and forgive them? Yes. But God doesn't leave us alone. By his grace and with his Spirit's help, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we can obey and honor our great God and Savior. Faith, let us never despise or ignore or downplay or excuse away God's word. May we esteem it and walk in obedience to it. Then third, to confront biblically, we want to help the person confess their sin. That's, that's verse 13, because notice there, and David said to Nathan, after, after Nathan walks through helping him to own his sin through the story, then showing the severity of sin, then what do we see David do in response? Verse 13, and David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confessed. Now, pop quiz, what is confession? If, if one of the kids here, and kids are doing a great job, if one of the kids came up to you after the service and said, hey, by the way, during the sermon we are talking about confession, what is confession? What would you say? Very simply, confession biblical confession, it's agreeing with God that what you had done was sin. Confession is agreeing with God that what you had done is sin. That's what we see David doing. And in, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at Psalm 51, and we're going to see this in greater detail. And what we're going to see when we look at Psalm 51, David's confession we're going to learn that sin, first and foremost, is always against our holy and righteous God. It's, sin is always first against God. And more on that in the weeks to come. However, when helping a person caught in sin, we, refer, we really we want to get them to this point. 
Will they confess their sin to God and those they've sinned against? We want to help them agree with God that what they did was sinful. We don't want them to get to a place where they're making excuses for what they had done or justifying what they had done or deflecting what they had done or saying, the woman you gave me made me do this as Adam did in Genesis 3. We want them to say what David said, just a few short words, I have sinned against God. No excuses, no justifying. I agree, God, what I did was wrong. But if I went like this, closed my Bible, and prayed and dismissed, I would be committing pastoral malpractice because this is not where biblical confrontation ought to end. There's another, arguably the most important thing we ought to do when we get our friends to this point. And finally, biblical confrontation helps a person claim assurance of forgiveness. Because look at what the prophet says in response to David's confession. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. What a vivid picture of forgiveness. You shall not die. During my my freshman year in Bible college, we had a, a pastor come to chapel and speak, and I'll never forget how he opened up his sermon. He opened by saying this. He said, look, he's like, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. And then he said this. In fact, I work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> and we all kind of laughed. And then he said this, but you know what? He's like, I'm still going to preach to you. And he says, not because of anything special I might say, or in me. He said, but I'm going to continue to preach to you because of the power and authority of God's word. Faith, the Nathan was a prophet of God. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but none of you are. And neither am I. Indeed, like that pastor, no one here is even the son of a prophet. So here's the question. If Nathan is a model for soul care for us, how can we say what he says to David? How can we offer our Christian brothers and sisters the same assurance of God's forgiveness like we see David doing in this passage? You know how? Because though we are not prophets, we do have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, as 2 Peter 1 says, and that is the Bible. Because what does God's clear revealed word say to us in 1 John 8 and 9, it promises. And we are to transmit and share this promise to our Christian brothers and sisters. It promises that if we confess our sins to God, God will, not might, not maybe, but if we confess our sins to God, He will. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and then it gets better, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? And faith, this is the assuring word we need to give to our repentant Christian brothers and sisters when they finally own their sin and they grasp sin's severity and then they confess it to God and those necessary to confess it to, we need to be like Nathan and say, God's word speaks to you, friend. You are forgiven. 
as far as the east is from the west, God remembers our sins no more. Praise Him. Your sin that you confessed years ago to the Lord is buried in the past. Now, Satan, the great accuser, will want to bring that up to you again to condemn you, but you say, no, it's been taken care of by the blood of Christ. He's faithful to forgive me of my sins, and I walk now in that newness of life. Now, how is this possible? How is it possible that our sins are so great and grievous that deserve death? How can we be forgiven? Well, it's possible for the same reason why David was not sentenced to death for his sin. You know why? Because a son died in his place. As several commentators have pointed out, the child who dies in this text, he dies as a substitute. For David, the Lord's forgiveness was both marvelous and costly. The child would die. How is it that we sinful people can escape the rightful judgment and wrath we are owed for our sin? I'll tell you why. It's because of David's greater son, Jesus Christ, because he died as our substitute on the cross. Amen? And this is what makes the gospel good news. Jesus died in our place bearing the full wrath of God for our sin. Our, our sins of thought, of action, of attitude. Christ died to forgive us of our sins and three days later, Jesus conquered the grave, rising from the dead and proving himself to be the very Son of God. As we celebrate this time every year, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This is who we needed to come. And praise God he did, amen? For what, for you, know what you know what the message of Jesus does? You know what it does? It confronts us. The gospel confronts us. It confronts us of our sin. It says, you are a sinner. But then it also points us to the one who can make us clean so our relationship with God can be restored, and that's Jesus Christ who died in our place. Amen? May we find joy and peace in him. Let's pray.